Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. I'm Zeba Khan, and this is the Muslim Matters Podcast. Pornography is a Muslim problem. And while the discussion on Muslims and pornography consumption has begun to enter mainstream masjid event levels of discussion, we often focus on porn is haram without any context that addresses the underlying causes and the effects of pornography consumption. To dig further in this today, I'm honored to be speaking with Abida Minhas, who is a licensed professional counselor and a supervisor with a BA in psychology and a master's in clinical psychology. She served as a clinician for over a decade. Abida is also a founding member of MAPS, the Muslim Association for Psychological Services, which is a social enterprise whose purpose is to bridge the gap between mental health needs in the Muslim community. Abida, thank you so much for joining me today. Assalamu alaikum, everyone, and thank you, Zeba, for having me on, and I'm very privileged and honored to have to be on your podcast. Thank you. My pleasure. I'm very happy to have you because this is a topic that comes up a lot. Um, so as you might know about Muslim Matters, we get a lot of hits. We get about a, a million users per year, to be honest. And when we look at the data trends over articles and videos that always pop up to the top of the numbers, regardless of when they're published, they often have to do with porn and sex addiction. And even articles that are published 11 years ago, 12 years ago, they're still at the top of our stats, especially the ones on how to quit. We have this wonderful piece uh, by a brother who submitted it anonymously about, you know, 10 tips to help overcome porn addiction. And it has come to the top of our stats year after year after year, about 11 years later. So The question that I want to start with is, we already know that porn is haram, but why is it that practicing Muslims who know it's haram and want to quit still find it so hard to quit? Well, yeah, Zeba, that is a great question. I think in our community, uh, especially anything that's related to sexuality or sex itself is still a pretty big stigma. I think generally sexuality and anything behaviorally to, to communicate about healthy sexual practices as well as stigmatized sexual practices like addiction are obviously very much not talked about. So when we have a healthy, you know, a healthy notion of speaking about sexuality, we certainly don't talk about it. And then when you layer it on top of something like an addictive behavior, it becomes highly stigmatized. Part of, I think, part of the the issue that we need to focus on, first of all, uh, Zeba, with your question, is the why. And I think maybe the why we can answer is why sexual addiction itself is a problem, because we have a word like addiction in it. Addiction itself defined by the APA, the American Psychological Association, Mm -hmm. is a chronic disorder of biological, psychological, and social and environmental factors. And they influence our developmental as well as maintenance of functional behaviors and lifestyles. Can you translate that? (laughs) Yes, of course. Of course. Um, You know, in just in brief words, it just means that anything that that comes in between us having a functional, productive, healthy life. Mm. So... Addiction is something that intrudes in anything that we are trying to maintain that's healthy, functional, or overall generally psychologically and mentally and physically healthy for us. How do you define addiction and and why is pornography an addiction instead of just some other sin that people commit like lying or like, you know, picking up someone's wallet instead of giving it back to them? How is it different from that? 
You know, part of addictive behaviors or addictions, um, Zeba, is to go back to really looking at why something becomes dysfunctional for us. So from a psychological, biopsychological um, mindset or, you know, point of view, it is because the way that it affects our our brain system. You know, I mean, addiction is something that, you know, altercates our prefrontal cortex. It makes us not make healthy decisions. It makes us not make good, profound decisions. You know, we, a lot of people who are addicts, you know, defined as addicts or have an addiction to something like pornography, gambling, or, or really engage in behaviors that are unhealthy. Again, going back to the word dysfunctional, it does really affect the way that they make decisions and live their lives, you know, and it affects the way that their brain functions as well. In what ways? Well, you know, we were, let's talk about the executive fun- functioning. A lot of times people who are, who are addicts or are addicted to certain behaviors, they start making very impulsive decisions, you know? So if you have somebody who needs to go to school, let's say an adolescent, and they're chronically looking at pornography all day long, or they're in their mind thinking about ruminating, you know, like the rumination cycle, they overall become so engaged in these thought processes that they don't make healthy decisions that, you know, they make impulsive decisions. They're, they're not able to have a healthy lifestyle. They mm-hmm. engage in behaviors that might, you know, impair them from having a healthy, healthy life. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, you know, with especially pornography or addiction to pornography or in any kind, uh, one certainly one things that really heightens is obviously their his, their stress, their anxiety, their depression. So with addiction, it's the secondary dysfunction that we really, really get overwhelmed by. You know, as a clinician, that's what I see. You know, that's what I treat is people who come from how the secondary dysfunction has caused them distress, the anxiety, the depression, the way that they're not able to interact with their family members, the way they get isolated from their family members. They themselves become become and choose to become isolated because they're so so engaged in these dysfunctional behaviors that they have to go hide in their room all day long or they have to go in a you know certain part of their their safe space to be able to find that gratification for example so it it in themselves they feel a lot of disconnect and dysfunction so you mentioned the terms primary and secondary so you're saying that the the people who come to you are often coming not because they're addicted to porn but because they're they have anxiety or depression that's caused by it, but they're coming to address the the effect of the addiction? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because a lot of times, you know, you don't, we don't even notice with a lot of patients or clients that they have an addiction. You know, it's often when the secondary issues start happening, like their, you know, anxiety or their depression or their reclusing from family members or they disengage from social events you know, an otherwise, let's say an extroverted person who was engaged in, let's say, mosque events or doing prayers or socially engaged, and now you don't see them at davits or parties anymore. You know, they may feel very embarrassed or anxious or even depressed or disengaged from social social um, environments to even come to some of these things. One thing that's mentioned when we read articles about pornography written by Muslims is the misconception that pornography addiction only happens to people who don't practice or quitting pornography is simply a matter of having enough faith or, you know, wanting to repent badly enough. But we find that there are still people who are desperate to quit, who 
don't have any sort of crisis of faith. Correct. They're suffering from something else entirely. For what we see professionally and clinically, it is not lack of faith. It is not their lack of deen or iman that makes them refrain or not or disengage or engage in in harmful behaviors. Again, you know, going back to the bio uh, cycle mechanisms of how the human brain is formulated, a lot of these addictive behaviors, the new research tells us that some things are deeply embedded in the way that our brains are formulated. Some people are naturally have addictive personalities. And a lot of times what happens is that they may have a stress or distress or a compound effect of, let's say there's an environmental factor that causes them to feel anxious or feel overwhelmed, or they have a misunderstanding or a misconception even of what sexuality may be. And, you know, gradually they, the compound effect of their neurobiochemistry plus their environment creates an addictive behavior or personality. So people find themselves looking or seeking something, seeking relief from something, and they self-medicate with pornography? Sometimes that is the case, yes. And, you know, part of what I'll, I'll say, you know, as and I, I don't want to get so, so technical, you know, or clinical, but one thing I'll say, Zeba, for sure, which is, you know, we've all heard for many, many years is the nature versus nurture. You know, mm-hmm. some people have a have a nature in them that's maybe impulsive, more addictive, and then you put something a natural event, let's say an environmental effect or event where they don't understand, let's say sexuality, or they don't have a healthy relationship or, or they're, you know, have a personality that they feel disengaged from social, social lifestyles or feel shy to speak to the opposite gender or the, you know, they are not comfortable, let's say, with Mm -hmm. expressing their sexuality in some ways that's healthy. And a lot of times, again, you know, it is a gradual, it is a gradual effect that happens over time that creates addictions, you know, especially sexual addictions. And, you know, somebody might start curiously looking at something like, you know, they're curious about something online, um, on a book, on on some magazine, and then gradually becomes more that excitability that that kicks in, um, you know, that, that happy hormone kicks in, you know, mm-hmm. um, they get all this endorphin rush endorphins make you feel so good. And then, you know, they want the next, um, they want the next excitability. They want the next hit and gradually it turns into where they're, you know, they're, it's turning addictive because they, you know, a lot of times they'll start doing their healthy lifestyle, stop going to work, stop going to school, stop going to the masjids. And a lot of times the Dean is actually what they hold on to for a lot of people, their faith, some normalcy to be able to find relief. Mm-hmm. So actually Dean and addiction are two on a very opposite spectrum. You know, one does not cause the other or vice versa. It's very interesting because in in addition to the misconception that being religiously practicing protects you from pornography, Mm -hmm. there's also the misconception that marriage automatically cures the need to see pornography or pornography addiction. Correct. Uh, Brother uh, Ahmad, who wrote that uh, really excellent article on Muslim Matters that was titled 10 tested ways to overcome porn addiction. He wrote, quote, uh, a well-meaning religious counselor once advised me to consider getting married in order to overcome my porn addiction. After no luck giving it up, I considered marriage and pursued a courtship only to realize 
halfway in the process that I was still watching it. If I couldn't stop while I was in a relationship with a real woman, who is to say I would stop if we got married? I knew at that point that my behavior wasn't just a bad habit. It was an addiction that had a life of its own. For people like Ahmad, and may Allah bless him and, and reward him greatly for writing this really uh, excellent piece that has resonated with a lot of our readers. If you find yourself in the cycle of pornography addiction, where's a good place to start? How do you begin to break out of it? You know, many times we presume that being married or getting into a relationship will rid, quote unquote, you of this addiction, which is not true. You know, if we're talking about something that's become, let's say, part of your habits or your behaviors, and then also affected your brain, you know, let's think about it that way. I mean, it is absolutely very challenging and difficult to, quote unquote, get rid of it by doing or saying one thing. It is many changes, lots of changes. I think one of the challenges and one of the first step I would say is recognition, you know, recognizing how much of my addiction, my behavior is impacting my lifestyle. If I'm not going to work so I can sit on my computer screen or get a magazine or watch videos all day, that is an addiction. If you're not getting enough sleep because you're up watching pornographic material or something that's dysfunctional, if you're not finding relief in your partner because you rather be stimulated by something else, some dysfunction there. Um, you're you're noticing we're noticing mood changes, right? I mean, the anxiety, the depression, the lack of sleep, not eating well, not interacting with m- members of your family or social networks or friends in the same way. Again, dysfunctional behaviors. And one of the ways that you find relief, uh, Zeba, as you asked, first recognizing there is something wrong with me. There may be something wrong with me. And then, of course, getting help with a professional, getting help. And, and you know, when I say professional, I mean therapist, you know, psychologist, psychiatrist, imams, family members. I mean, people that you can enclose in your little tribe, in your circle, that you find vulnerable, comfortable, and get help. And, you know, Zeba, I say imam because Islamically and spiritually, that is a factor that can help us overcome our addictions. but Remember, it is multitude factors, you know, multifaceted challenge. Therefore, it needs a multifaceted treatment to be able to help us. I like how you you mentioned that it's more than just one factor at a time. And it makes sense when there are so many different things that contribute to, uh, you know, pornography consumption and pornography addiction, that there's not one magic button or there's not one button that you could push that would manage to stop the cycle. There'd have to be a lot of buttons from the clients that you've served and from the people that you've talked to is pornography addiction curable? Is this something that people can recover from realistically? You know, um, Zeba, I think, um, Mashal, another good question that you have, um, you know, the research tells us obviously, and as a therapist, of course, I always, you know, thrive on hope and my own the in any man, with the hope that inshallah that things can get better you know i mean as we know having in our deen of course is tawakkul is very strong so you know mm-hmm. having that hope that yes things can get better again as we talked about previously it because it's a, addiction is such a challenging disease disease of your brain mm-hmm. of our habits of, and of our behaviors it does take 
again, a lot of steps backwards and then forwards and steps backward and forwards to come overcome this challenge. Is it curable in one behavioral change? No, of course, as again, since it's so challenging, it does take a lot of work for the individual, for the family, for the people that that are around them to be able to help them overcome that. Um, You know, part of it is because of how especially things like porn addiction have become so prevalent, at least in the last decade or so, Zeva. Um, You know, Mm -hmm. I'll give you some statistics that I found while we were, you know, when researching this topic today for our talk, which is the the statistics that we have with different websites and um, porn addictions is is so prevalent that at least 64 to 68% of young adult men and about 18 to 20% of young women use porn at least at once every week. Mm, wow. And, you know, the kind of addiction that that it creates, the devastation that it creates in, in, in homes and families, um, that the American Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers reports that 56% of divorce cases are unresolvable because of, of a partner's obsession with pornography or their interest in pornographic websites. Fifty six percent. Five, six. Wow. So 56%. I mean, that is a very big number, obviously, because of the stigma, the guilt and shame. If somebody goes through divorce, they may not completely be open and authentic and tell you this is why we're divorcing. This is why I couldn't get along with my partner. Mm -hmm. But in a therapeutic setting, I can tell you those statistics are absolutely on point. Mm -hmm. Because when we see couples going through very vulnerable issues and they can't come in a very private setting to discuss these vulnerable issues, many times addiction plays a big part. And believe it or not, it plays a big part in our Muslim communities as well. Um, many times we we tend to dust it under the rug or you know, we still have this stigmatized mentality that boys will be boys, that certain things, you know, a man will a man especially mm-hmm. is prone to do. But that is not true. If something's become dysfunctional for one person of your family, it will create dysfunction in the rest of the family. You know, maybe not today, but sooner or later, it it does. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with that being said, I think being mindful that these are not small statistics, as you said, you know, I can tell by your reaction that this is this is a big number. And that was very much higher than I thought it would be, especially when you consider that, you know, again, in doing research for this topic, there are a lot of people who are pro-pornography. There are a lot of people, not from the Muslim community, obviously, but from outside of the Muslim community who'd be like, oh, watching pornography as a couple together is a healthy way to spice up your sex life. That that doesn't sound like something that would be linked to 56% of divorces. Right. Right. Well, you know, with the mindset and, you know, without judgment to anybody, but yes, there are many people that believe that in terms of sexuality or terms of, uh, terms of watching certain kinds of pornography, um, you know, I will say this, that a lot of times one thing that I have to often help patients or clients understand the types of pornography somebody watches, Zeba can be very definitive, sometimes even linked to a past trauma you know, the type Hmm. of pornography somebody watches. So somebody that watches something that is, let's say, very demeaning to women, or something that creates a lot of mechanism that that creates an unhealthy perception of what sexuality is, or what a relationship is like, 
clearly mm-hmm. does not understand a healthy relationship. So often in, in a therapeutic setting, Zeba, we even have to talk about what is a healthy relationship look like? You know, this person might come from a family system where there was a lot of abuse or a lot of power and control. And somehow mm-hmm. they find relief in trying to find that for themselves in maybe an unhealthy way in watching high levels of pornography. Mm. People who express healthy sexual lifestyles or have a healthy sexual life are people that start with actually having healthy emotional relationships. You know, they have a good understanding of their own emotional mental health. Their partners are overall emotionally, mentally healthy. And, you know, that trickle effect is that they also Mm -hmm. find peace and comfort in expressing their physical and sexual intimacy with their partners. So somebody who's, you know, engaging in healthy relationships globally, you know, in an everyday interaction. And of course, men and women, of course, perceive sexuality Mm -hmm. very differently, not, you know, always, but generally speaking, that most men and women look at sexuality very differently from women in emotional connection and emotional and mental connection is vital. Mm -hmm. Um, And for a man, you know, generally speaking, a physical attraction as well as an emotional attraction is very important. But, you know, the overlap is the emotional connection for both, that both men and women thrive on emotional connections in order to feel connected with their partners. And so if you have an understanding, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, when we see partners who haven't been physically or intimately connected for a long time, you Mm -hmm. know, it's because they don't speak very much long term, or they don't feel very attracted to each other because they don't have an emotional connection with each other, or they find themselves in in relationships over time, or they've had children, or they feel distracted. And again, there's no emotional connection that they're building on. So a lot of times, Mm -hmm. you know, when I when I look at or see clients or patients coming in, even on healthy circumstances, nothing to do with addiction. Many times it's helping them under, again, understand what is a healthy relationship like? What is a healthy relationship for you specifically look like? And how can we help you get there? Mm-hmm. And I say with addiction, it's the same mechanism, starting with the basics. What is a healthy relationship look like for you sexually? What is a sexual healthy relationship like look like for you? And then working the ground up from there. What about for people who do not yet have the outlet for a healthy sexual relationship, people who are pre-marriage, who people who are, are pre-adolescent, you know, who don't necessarily have, you know, the, the halal alternative or, you know, have that emotional inacti- connectivity with another person? As a therapist, I can provide very different, I think, input than maybe their own spiritual leader or their imam or sheikh or somebody that they trust with their spirituality. Because many times, you know, as a therapist, I may look at the biological needs a person has, a sexual needs a person has, and maybe helping the family navigate what healthy way can a person or adolescent express themselves that the family values are comfortable with. You know, maybe there are certain families that say, okay, well, we feel that you know, this person has um, an understanding of uh, sexuality or as an adolescent, they're too young to get married, but we want them to provide an or have a healthy outcome of what they can do. Um, I think talking about, especially for parents, I mean, this is maybe a question we can start with parent-child relationships, is Mm -hmm. talking, especially with your children at a young age, what does a healthy sexuality look like? You know, I tell, especially in our Muslim communities, even that, you know, we come from a very respectful, 
thoughtful community, but it is so vital for parents of men, young men, young women to discuss consent with their children. What is a cons- mm-hmm. what does consent mean? You know, with your with your sexual partner. What does a healthy relationship look like for your partners? For you, you know, what is healthy? You know, healthy body look like for you. Healthy sexuality look like for you. Um, in our communities, Eva, as you know, some parents don't talk often with their children about sexuality or body development, and alhamdulillah, it is a biological phenomenon that every adolescent, every adult human being goes through is they have to go through puberty. They have to go through the biological changes and sexual changes in order to one day, you know, have families and children of their own. But, you know, there's so much guilt and shame that we associate around it that children don't often get talked to about these things. So if you were a parent, which some of us are, and don't even know the answers to these questions yourself, because I am sure that a lot of people wouldn't even know how to even begin to answer that question on their own. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like if you say, discuss with your child what is healthy sexuality. I don't even know how to start answering that question. Sure. Like g- give me the cliff notes on this. How would I explain to my child what is healthy sexuality? How well, would you define that even? You know, I think it. Uh, one, Zeba, I would say, again, as as – child rearing and parenting are often challenges such as addiction is a challenge. I think it's starting with what is developmentally appropriate. You know, clearly the way you can talk to a 12 year old is going to be very different than the way you talk to, let's say a 17 year old. And Mm -hmm. so I think being that, you know, the age appropriateness and the very beginning, always reminding your child of, you know, politeness, healthy relationships as, as parents, as we often try to help our parents and children understand one thing that I think I thrive on, Zeva, professionally and personally, is having a didactical, meaning a conversation, like a sit-down conversation with your child, like asking them question, what do you understand and what can I help you understand? You know, often as they see, especially South Asian parents or Muslim parents if coming from our communities and our religion, we feel like we have to talk down to our children. You know, like, let me tell you what what mm-hmm. sexuality is or what right. I think you need to know. Like, don't touch girls. Don't touch boys. Don't ever talk to them. You know, yeah. living in 2021, honestly, that's not how it's going to work. I mean, from wh- where I'm sitting, it is not very functional at all. What right. does work is sitting down and explaining to them what your expectation is, you know, mm-hmm. and and helping them understand what their boundaries are and what you expect of them in their in our value systems, you know. I know you're going to have certain things that are have, happening in your body, explaining to them this physical, biological phenomena they're going through. I tell parents, be vulnerable. Tell them about your own family struggles. You know, tell them about what you went through as an adolescent and how it impacted you. Kids listen to you. I know parents often come in telling me, oh, my child doesn't listen to me. That's not true. Children, mm-hmm. the most influential people in our lives, biologically, subhanAllah, is our parents, our caregivers. And whether Mm -hmm. we like it or not, you know, our parents will tell us something and we might be irritated as, you know, I'll get out, but it sticks with us, you know, it influences Mm -hmm. us. I mean, even as adults. So that is the, you know, biological phenomenon. And so your question is, how do I talk to my child? I'd say having a really good interactive conversation can be very helpful start and doing it as much as possible, Zeva, like taking out time to be able to sit down and really explaining the expectations. You know, if there's obviously something like an addiction in a family mm-hmm. system, 
making sure that that is a check-in you do with, with your family and immediate family, right? I, I want to give grace and, and to families who are going through addiction because it is a very private matter and I want to respect that. But knowing that they can connect with professionals, knowing that they can count on any mom they trust, you know, a professional or psychologist or therapist or physician they trust, you know, challenging things need lots of things to help them get better. You know, not one or two things. I mean, at least I see a healthier outcome when we use a a lot of tools in our discretion, a lot of tools Mm -hmm. in our discretion help. That's interesting that you, you've mentioned family several times and, and speaking to families, mentioning dealing with pornography addiction and working with families. Um, in one of the studies that we read up, like 78% of Muslims who consume porn were terrified of being discovered and were very secretive uh, for fear of being judged, for having their reputation destroyed, um, for fear of being harmed, you know, getting in trouble with their family. Um, in general, like, how is it that the yeah. family becomes involved? Well, you know, I think that is a complex nature of addiction. You know, often that the guilt and shame happens before any help happens. You know, the the suffering happens before we can even get to treatment. And sometimes people go through months years, you know, maybe even decades before they get help. And so the complexity is in my hope as at least, and my hope and and hopefully getting people to understand that the sooner you get help, the sooner it's better. The sooner we can overcome our own guilt and shame or our need to protect our children or our family members from the outsiders, the external forces like the community or what my, my people might think, you know, this in our community, you know, the big thing is like the first thing you hear is like, what will people think? What will people say? You know, the longer you sit on that thought process, I can tell you, Zeva, that the longer it will take to get any kind of treatment or help at all, the sooner you focus on the fact that this is something serious and this is something that's going to cause long-term dysfunction. The longer I sit on it, the sooner you can get help. And, you know, guilt and shame is a very, very powerful, powerful emotion. You know, it makes you not authentic. It makes you not face the reality of what can what can happen, which is an, what a behavior can turn into an addiction in a few months' time. Um I think part of it is to know that you can go to trusted people. There's many trusted people. I think you mentioned our network earlier, the MAPS network. We have wonderful therapists on there. We started with four, four years ago, and we have up to 30. And um, Michelle, I'm proud of that network because I think we want to be able to help community members that have shied away from getting any help or treatment over the years, you know, doing this work for a long time, often... Honestly, I genuinely feel empathetic, but also sad that we don't see how much impact that small things can do to our lives. You know, the fact that we try to hide our guilt and shame, and then months later, somebody's looking at on the verge of being a very dysfunctional person because we felt so guilty to get them help, or that they had some behavior that we kept bypassing as not as a big deal. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned the the work that MAPS does, and, and I know that you guys give talks at masjids and you try and educate communities and you, you try to connect uh, Muslims to mental health by mm-hmm. stigmatizing what's associated with that, correct? 
Yes, absolutely. Does, yes. does pornography addiction come up a lot? Are you asked to talk about this a lot in communities or are you usually called on for other like more khutbah friendly topics? You know, we don't get called uh, to talk about sexuality. I'll be very honest. I mean, um, you know, part of it could be that, again, it goes back to that we don't talk about these topics openly and in an open forum, for example, anywhere. Um, not just in our communities, but in generally, you know, pornography and sexual pornography and addiction is something that we don't openly talk about in any really big social gatherings, um, social, you know, society-wise, from different cultures, from different walks of life. Um, again, I think it just goes back to that. I, I think for a long time, we've looked at these topics as taboo. Mm. You know, we looked at these top topics as something we don't talk about. And then, of course, in our communities, because we're so sheltered or, or, you know, seemingly sheltered that I don't think that we, uh, people talk about that. But when we see a new generation of people that are on social media, that are, are seeing all kinds of images all day long, they're um, exposed to things that, that, you know, you and I probably weren't exposed to in our adolescent years. Of course. Um, that I think that you do see a societal change in the way that people are looking at sexuality and pornography and addiction. But we're not addressing it at the same time, which I think makes it an extra layer of difficulty. I, I, I find that so tremendously amazing and scary at the same time, because I'll be honest, the only time I ever saw pornography as a child was somebody dropped a magazine in the park where I was playing and it was flapping mm -hmm. around in the grass. And I remember looking over it and going, oh, she's not wearing any clothes. You know, I was like six or seven yeah. and I was like, Ooh, and I ran off mm. and that memory stuck with me because it made me so uncomfortable and so just like confused. Like, what is that? Like, why? Mm -hmm. But for my kids, the first time they were exposed to pornographic images was when there was a kid in the masjid watching questionable things on their tablet in the musalla. And mm. it was like, wow. You know, they came to me. They're like, mama, that person's watching something really strange on their iPad and it was another child. And I was like, well, this is not the type of location or timing or modality of this conversation that I'd ever thought mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'd have to have. Mm -hmm. And it was extremely um, unexpected. I'll be really honest. Very, very yeah, unexpected course. that the first time I had to talk to my kids about what pornography is, you know, why it's a problem, you know, and, and all the associated, you know, sub discussions that it leads to, and as well as like the precursors that it comes from, like, you can't really explain pornography without explaining sex. You know, you can't explain sex without explaining attraction. I never thought I would have to have this conversation because some kid is sitting on their tablet in the masjid watching weird things on YouTube. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I, I think we, ab I absolutely have to have you back. I absolutely have to have oh. you back on because we need to talk about, you know, children's exposure to pornography in the Muslim community and how we're still as a community trying to wrap our heads around adults consuming pornography when we know that adults absolutely. are sexually active human beings. We haven't wrapped our minds around that yet, but the average yes. age of exposure for children is, is around 11 years old now. I can imagine your shock and I can imagine what it was like to be able to think about that. And I, I and I 
also want to thank you for being so kind and wanting to invite me back. I'd absolutely be happy to come back and talk about these things. I mean, you know, again, working over, you know, over 10 years, almost going close to 11 years in this field and having worked in our community with the cases that I've seen and the people that I see, um, obviously, if we can help our communities get better educated on how we can tackle these topics and how we can help our community members and the next generation and youth understand certain ideas and concepts of what it's like to be normal and and unhealthy or even in some ways dysfunctional and abnormal, Mm -hmm. I think we're going to see very different changes, you know, throughout. And I think part of it is just education, like you said. You know, your idea at your age, at a young, vulnerable age, was very different. You know, and a lot of times I can imagine as a six-year-old, you're even scared to tell your parent, oh, I saw something really, you know, gross or silly on the playground, you know, but, but six-year-olds do, they, they, they often do. But, you know, if you have a parent who reinforces it by saying, don't ever look at that, that's haram, you know, that's going to, that's going to give you bad nightmares or like, you know, parents try to scare, scare off their children. Mm-hmm. You're naturally, you get curious, you know, what was that scary thing that I saw? What was that scary thing that I shouldn't look at? Mm-hmm. And, you know, imagine that curiosity for an adolescent who has it in their hand, a tablet, a laptop, mm. you know, an iPad, who's like, I wonder what that curious, curious thing is that I cannot look at, you know? Yeah. But if you take away, you know, the curiosity, that danger, but help them understand why we don't look at certain things, what it could do to you, you know, helping them understand some of the things that even we're talking about today, Zeva, I think it can have a profound effect on family relationships and dynamics, you know, but we shy away from those things. Quite literally, the guilt and shame that lack of communication does contribute to to things turning addictive eventually for some people. So it's almost like if you don't give people the right answers from an appropriate perspective, they're forced to seek out answers and they won't find them in an appropriate context or with the appropriate perspective. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I think it goes back to the question that we discussed earlier, Zeba, which when you said that, you know, um, when parents or even a person who comes with a problem says, I have a real problem, you know, I have a serious problem. And somebody says, well, just make the walk or just go to the and you'll get better. Imagine the guilt and shame that sets in. Maybe I'm a terrible Muslim and this is why it's happening to me. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm not making enough dua or dhikr and this is why it's happening to me. You know, we if you, you know, put icing on a complex issue, that doesn't mean that it is not complex on the inside. Like the icing looks good, but you know, unfortunately it doesn't solve the problem. Yeah. And I don't think that we need to do that anymore. You know, subhanAllah, I think we have great leaders and community members and Islamic scholars in our community. And they give us so much, so much enrichment, mashallah. But with something like addiction, we need, as I mentioned earlier, a multifaceted treatment, you know, and our Islamic education and value is one factor of that. Getting other professional helps is another factor of it. All together, it can have great outcomes all together. What would be an absolute dream best case scenario for the Muslim community to strive towards when it comes to discussing pornography, like pre-education and post-addiction recovery, what would an amazing setup look like? Um, You know, what a wonderful, mashallah, beautiful question that you have. And honestly, it's something that I've thought about and, and 
think about often, mm-hmm. you know, uh, being a parent myself, which is, I think if we can give, as you said, a pre-education, a formative education, an ongoing education, plus a connection in the community without the guilt and shame and actual education, I think it can have profound benefits, Zeva. I think if we could, you know, help and understand, help our youth from an early age understand when for young boys or young women that their bodies are changing, you know, what by well-intended professional and scholarly people all together, giving them the background of how Islamically and spiritually and emotionally and biologically all these changes are happening and how we can help you understand these things and help your help understand your body quite frankly and help understand your mind and physically and emotionally how we can help you if you ever struggle and and that helps get kids information from the right place so they don't seek it from the wrong place absolutely you know that curiosity for an adolescent um that endorphin rush we talked about, you know, that thrill-seeking behaviors. I mean, adolescents are prone to it. Mm. And biologically, you know, kids thrive on those impulsiveness. Uh, the human brain, Zeva, is not even fully developed until 25. Oh. So imagine a 15-year-old who is not fully functioning in their brain cap- capacity. And we're not talking about intellectual capabilities, by the way. You know, our intellectual capabilities are in a very different spectrum for all of us. Mm-hmm. But, you know... Your, your brain is not fully developed. Therefore, you're going to have more, you know, you're going to have lack of impulse control. What you expect from a 15-year-old versus like a 35-year-old are two different things because their impulse control is developed. You know, their prefrontal cortex, their executive functioning is really more fully developed at 35 versus 15. So if you ask a 15-year-old, don't watch something, and they have this curiosity, that adrenaline rush of figuring out, let me see what's out there that mom and dad are telling me not to watch, you know, Mm -hmm. what are Ami and Baba telling me not to watch. And then all of a sudden, there's this thrilling feeling that they get from watching something that's inappropriate or something that can lead to the path of addiction. Mm -hmm. They want that rush back. You know, you want that feeling of endorphins and rush back, that excitability back. Mm -hmm. And so if you talk to them about the certain limitations or what's, again, everybody has a different value system or what they're allow and don't allow their boundaries, I do think that we can have better outcomes. And I, please don't get me wrong. It's not an easy thing. I know easier said than done when we're going through challenges as a family. Of course. But before it comes a challenge, I say we do some preventative measures by education. And what about um, recovery measures? Like you talk about, you know, pre-education, but what about... What can the Muslim community do to support and destigmatize uh, Muslims who are trying to overcome pornography consumption or addiction? Well, I think, Zeb, I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, um, which was to try to get a multifaceted treatment. You know, if we do face a challenge like addiction or porn addiction or sexual addictions, recognizing there's a problem, you know, recognizing if there's a complex problem like addiction, that one thing like making a lot of dhikr or dua is not the only thing. I'm not saying it's not a thing. It is a thing. It is part of the factor. Mm-hmm. It's part of the puzzle piece, if you will. And then finding and aligning with people and professionals that you trust, community members that you trust to be able to tackle those issues. Getting to the deep-rooted issue of why this addiction started, what what perpetuated that cycle. You know, a lot of times, like I said, if you're don't have an understanding what a healthy relationship is, 
like, you try to seek it out in other places, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, And depending on your age group, depending on where you are in your developmental years, you know, whether you're a young adult or an adolescent or an adult, you're going to have different outcomes and circumstances. Mm -hmm. Certainly, I can tell you that for pornography and sexual addiction, it starts early on, you know, generally around adolescent years, Mm -hmm. because that's when the brain is more predisposed, if you will, to addictive behaviors. And many times, if that's not helped to have any kind of prevention, then you will see an outcome later in years that hasn't gone away. Mm. You know, we had a we had a great article um, written last year or so by a Muslim sister named Sakina, who has been battling alcohol addiction um, since her teenage years. Um, and in it, she fantasizes about one day, maybe the masjid will have an AA chapter. But mm. until then, she attends all of her Alcoholics Anonymous meetings in a church, mm. which is, you know, devoid of the spiritual guidance and the perspective that she's looking for. And of course. I would hope that one day, perhaps, I don't know, Allahu Alam, we could reach a level where there are mm-hmm. support groups that are, you know, spiritually aligned to Muslims and their goals that allow them to to get help from each other without having to be as as closeted about their recovery as they are about their addiction, inshallah. Inshallah. No, inshallah. That let's all hope for that, Zeba, because certainly uh, when people go through something and and to be honest, when you are the outlier in your community, you do feel a heavier burden. You know, mm. for somebody who is struggling with addiction, such as pornography, such as sexual addiction, or alcoholism, or anything that makes you the outlier or the the kind of the quote unquote um, haram Muslim or practicing haram ways, you naturally feel the guilt and shame. You naturally feel like you're isolated. Mm-hmm. And, you know, isolation breeds another mental health disorder, which is depression and anxiety. You know, it can mm-hmm. cause that cycle of anxiety to grow and grow, you know. So as we talked about earlier, that anxiety itself can be a factor in addiction. And then when somebody's already predisposed to that, I mean, you know, can you imagine that compound effect? Somebody who's predisposed to a certain thing, then you put anxiety on top of it. You give them no support. I mean, they're just stuck in their own mind over and over. And that addiction as well. I mean, the addiction is where they find relief and peace. That is so interesting and and depressing as well when you consider that I'm pretty sure that the people who think that they're outliers are actually in some pretty good company, given that Muslim pornography consumption and actually pornography consumption in Muslim majority countries is actually so well established that there are um, porn sites. I'm not going to cite the reference, but I've read the article that publish annual statistics about their drop in traffic in Ramadan and Mm. how many days into Ramadan each country picks up its normal level from. Hmm. And they have Ramadan targets because they know there's going to be a dip in activity, but only in the first week or so. Of course. Of course. Yes. I mean, that's when, you know, spiritually you're heightened. So you're less, you know, more likely and and less likely to visit these sites, you know, more uh, more likely to be more spiritually engaged. So when you're spiritually engaged, yes, it is a great factor to refrain from these things. But, you know, if we come, we if we 
good tool tools and good treatment and groundwork if you can come up with a mechanism. And remember, change is not easy ever. You know, when you get into these habits that turn into dysfunctional behaviors, it takes time. Mm-hmm. And just like that, Zeba, getting through this challenge also takes time. You know, we expect change to happen very quickly. We all like instant gratification. Mm-hmm. But when you've gone through something challenging like an addiction, especially a sexual addiction, it is going to take time and a lot of healing and a lot of work to be able to create healthy functional behaviors again. You know, sometimes months or weeks or years again. If instant gratification wasn't a problem, then I think most people wouldn't, or rather less people would have problems with pornography consumption. Absolutely. My way of bringing that up is that, you know, Muslims who think they're alone in that struggle are actually not Right. It's it's way more prevalent than we as a community would really be comfortable admitting. But unless we admit that the problem exists, there's no way to discuss solutions, basically. Absolutely. Absolutely right, Zeva. And I think I think part of it is also, as you said, is to be able to find those solutions, you know? It, it giving the the complex nature of these of these behaviors, we need community support. You know, we need less judgment. We need less guilt and shame. We need less ways to make people feel less inadequate if they're coming to us vulnerable and want to share their problems with us. And, you know, sometimes that takes systematic and global change to be able to do so. Inshallah, I hope we get there. Inshallah. Me too, Zeba. Thank you for highlighting a very important topic and to be able to give platform to to topics that otherwise don't get a lot of attention or even time in our communities, but it is a challenge that our communities face. I see and treat people that go through addiction, especially sexual addictions, and I thank you for being able to give this very important and vulnerable topic, not just pornography addiction, but addiction itself, because even in different circumstances, addiction is a part of our communities. And we have to be able to help our community members that suffer from it and to help them and to be able to have establish good functioning relationships within our community so don't we don't leave people behind or make them feel insecure. And globally, we can thrive as an online community, inshallah. Jazakallahu khairan. And thank you again to Abida Minhas for joining us on the Muslim Matters podcast. To learn more about Abida and the Muslim Association for Psychological Services, visit mapsnetwork.org. The links to Brother Ahmad's reflection on his journey to quitting porn and Sister Zakina's account of battling alcohol addiction can be found in the show notes of this podcast, as well as a post page on muslimmatters.org where you found this episode. We'd love to hear your thoughts, and you can share them in the comment section below. While you're there, you can also choose to become a supporter of Muslim Matters for less than a dollar a day, not only allowing us to produce and provide quality Islamic content for Muslim activists, scholars, and writers, but also allowing you to share in some of the blessings that reach over a million readers each year. Muslim Matters is a not-for-profit organization dedicated to the voices of Muslims in the media. To learn more about us, find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, and tell us what matters to you. Jazakallahu khairan. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu.